Hello, wherever you're joining us from, welcome to Talking Sustainable Real Estate with Dentons. I'm your host, Galen Doherty. This podcast series is dedicated to exploring the crucial intersection of real estate and ESG, looking at shaping a sustainable future for the industry. In this episode, we'll be joined by Catherine Beisler, an ESG expert from Hollis Global. Together, we're going to unravel the intricacies of ESG implementation in the real estate sector, uncovering strategies and insights that will empower professionals in the field to drive positive change. Whether you're a real estate developer, investor or an industry enthusiast, get ready for an enlightening journey towards a sustainable future in real estate. So, Catherine, are you ready to dive right in and explore this very topical issue in some more detail? Yes, definitely. And thank you for inviting me, Galen. Thank you for joining us. You've promised an enlightening talk, so that's a lot to live up to. (laughs) Let's hope we can do that. So first thing I wanted to ask you was, over the past couple of years, the term ESG has become increasingly popular. What do you think, Catherine, has contributed to this surge in popularity? And as an add-on to that, if I may, what kind of challenges or issues are your clients, both landlords and tenants, bringing to you in relation to ESG? Yeah, that's a good question. And this is a question that I get quite a bit, actually. Um, And I always think it's kind of a funny one because while ESG is sort of a new term and something Mm -hmm. that people are still getting their their heads wrapped around and working to define, um, the background of sustainability or corporate social responsibility, CSR, have been around for much longer. Um, But I think the term ESG has really come to um, the forefront in the last couple of years. And I think that's also really help to redefine what it means and what's included. Um, And so great that that's happened. You know, a few years ago, sustainability was kind of something that was a nice to have. Maybe it was the last thing that you would see on someone's website or the last page of a report or a document that they'd be pulling together. But in the last couple of years, that's definitely changed. And ESG's really come to the forefront of the real estate industry and decision-making and driving a lot of the things that we're seeing in the market right now. There's definitely been a big shift. And while sustainability has has always been there and maybe in the background, but kind of has has been more common, um, I think the kind of focus on social impact and the focus on health and well-being has definitely come forward during COVID and following COVID. So in terms of looking at ES and G, um, I would say the S portion was definitely the standout of of the pandemic and post-pandemic world. How can we Uh, make healthier built environments? How can we create socially responsible buildings? How can we bring people back to the office and create collaboration, et cetera? So yeah, that's definitely been a a big change sort of uh, post-COVID. And what kinds of challenges or issues do do we see and what kinds of questions do we get from clients? I think the first one, like you said, was defining it. So what does ESG mean? Um, And that's always an interesting one because where I think where people were doing sustainability or CSR for a long time, it's just kind of a rebrand and understanding some of the updated language and making sure that everyone's talking about the same thing when they're talking about ESG. I'd say the next biggest question that we get is what should they be doing about it? So we get a lot of questions like, you know, we want to make an ESG friendly building, but what does that mean? What should our targets actually be? That's something that we work on a lot is target setting. How should we future proof? buildings for the future. Um, And then between landlords and tenants, I would say we get a lot of questions about whose responsibility is it. So of course, a lot of these uh, things require maybe an upfront investments or planning for the long term. 
So we get a lot of questions about, well, who is responsible for this and how do we work together in the future? You mentioned there about um, clients asking what should they be doing. And I guess probably part of that is um, driven by increased statutory and legislative framework around ESG. How have you seen those statutory requirements for non-domestic or commercial buildings evolving in general? Are you able to give us sort of what are the current trends um, in terms of regulatory obligations at the moment? Yes, definitely. So the thing about the regulation and what's required by law is that it, it is constantly changing and changing for the better right now throughout Europe. But one of the difficulties that we have is that it's different in each of the European countries and that it's also constantly changing. So, for example, the building regulations were updated for England and Wales of last year, which changed the EPC requirements and the way that they were measured. Um, and then we get a lot of questions from clients. Well, how do we know they're not going to change again? And how do we know what's coming in the future as, as these things keep getting stricter or tighter or things keep developing. And so what I always say is kind of don't focus so much on that, you know, whatever the exact target is, whatever the exact requirement or regulation is, that might change and it will be different per country. But what we do know is the direction of travel. So we know that we're looking to reduce energy use, we're looking to reduce carbon emissions, we want to reduce embodied carbon in projects, we want to create healthy, inclusive environments and collaborate for a better built environment. So when I speak to clients, I try to get not so caught up in kind of what are the regulations, what are they going to be, what do we think that they're going to change in the future, but really we know the direction of travel, let's make sure that we're prepared for that for the future. That's good advice. Yeah, and I guess we we are starting to see some good trends in terms of you know, there's a lot of different guidance that's popped up in the last couple of years. So of course we've got the UK GBC, we've got the BRE, we have SBTI targets, we've got the CREM tool, etc. And we get a lot of questions about, well, which one should I be focusing on? How do these align with each other, etc.? And what we've really seen in the last couple of months is those organizations getting together and saying, how can we align to each other and try and streamline things for the industry and for the market? So while it is very new and people are still figuring out, I think we are getting to a point where we can kind of align them. And uh, yeah, there'll be more to that to come in the future. You know, it's clear that regulation, as you say, is that, you know, the direction of travel is clear. The government's actively promoting greener practices, but there's also been a significant market demand for sustainability. And I think that that's probably driven partly by, you know, what you spoke about, clients looking to generally reduce carbon and, and make their buildings, their spaces greener. Do you foresee that green buildings will become the new industry standard? You know, there's some definitely some research out there about kind of the how do you evaluate or what is the added value of a building with a high EPC label or a BREEAM certification, etc. But I think definitely what we've seen, at least in London, if not elsewhere, is that there is a flight to quality. All these tenants have requirements for their buildings and that they want to be in, in high performing buildings. They want their buildings to have certain certification. They're looking for bike storage, maybe rooftop gardens, etc. So you see everyone kind of with the same demands going for these buildings that are quite scarce. There's not that many of them around. So really a, a flight to quality there. Um, and you see a shortage of spaces that really meet those criteria or, you know, they can be quite expensive as well. So definitely a, a big focus on how do we improve our, our assets to make them meet those requirements. So I think interestingly, in addition to sort of the sustainability or the, the environmental requirements that we see for um, commercial buildings, we've also seen quite a shift in demand for the social aspects as well. So, for example, we're working on a building with a client right now that's a, um, a listed office building in downtown London. Um, and we're, of course, they're kind of making all of the standard 
uh, energy efficiency improvements. So they're improving the EPC, they're uh, reducing the energy use and the carbon emissions, et cetera. Um, they're spending a quarter of the budget on creating a rooftop garden. And it's, it's quite a lot of work. They've had to move a lot of the M&E kit, a lot of the HVAC uh, that's on the, on the roof um, just to make this rooftop garden. But they really think that that's going to add value to the building and help bring people back to the office in this sort of post-COVID world. Um, so we're really seeing kind of a lot of investment and demand for these social spaces as well. And Galen, I've got a question for you. Sure. In the legal world, green leases, of course, have gained attention as a mechanism to promote sustainable practices and commercial real estate. Can you explain about what the green lease entails and how it differs from a traditional lease? What are some of the key provisions or considerations that landlords and tenants should be including in their green leases to encourage these environmentally and ESG friendly practices? Yeah, this is a this is a question actually that we get asked a lot. Um, there isn't there isn't at the moment one industry standard form of the green lease. When when we talk about green leases, what we're really talking about is a variety of clauses which are added to leases and cover green objectives like improving energy efficiency, promoting circularity, reducing carbon emissions. At their core, um, these clauses set out a position between the landlord and the tenant that seeks to reduce the environmental impact of a property. Some of these do go further in terms of looking at the use of the buildings, as you mentioned, that that also is gaining more interest and attention uh, from both landlords and tenants and also the contribution to the surroundings and community, which obviously brings in more of the S&G elements. But primarily, when we talk about green lease clauses, they are at the moment more focused on green issues. It's also relevant when we're talking about green lease clauses to mention that even within those, there's a scale which ranges from light green, which is obligations on the parties um, to cooperate and report on energy usage, moving towards dark green provisions, which are more onerous and might include, for example, positive obligations to carry out energy improvement works. And then, of course, there's a whole range in between. Um, in terms of considerations uh, for landlords and tenants, on the landlord side of things, landlords are looking to retain flexibility to be able to carry out works, um, which might improve the energy efficiency to create social spaces, incorporate renewable energy sources. And importantly with that, they would want the ability to be able to recover some or all of their costs, usually via a service charge. For tenants, um, they're also looking at costs and they are potentially trying to reduce their exposure to certain costs depending on things like the length of the lease and the amount of benefit they're likely to derive uh, from works that are carried out. And tenants also are looking kind of beyond that to have the ability to perhaps veto planned works by the landlord, which might negatively affect environmental performance of a building because ESG credentials of spaces are increasingly becoming a key metric that tenants are interested in, as you mentioned, when they're taking space and they don't want that to be detrimentally impacted during the term of their lease. And also we've got landlords obviously with existing buildings and building new stock. When it comes to acquisitions, based on your experience, how does ESG factor into the due diligence process for that? Uh, are clients generally aware of ESG risks and considerations when they're looking acquire a property or is that something that you have to actively you know are you are you taking that to them effectively or are they bringing it to you first yeah that's a great question galen so at hollis we do a lot of technical due diligence so a lot of technical reviews of buildings when clients are buying selling or refinancing them 
Um, and I would say a couple of years ago, we had some clients that would do a due diligence during that period, but definitely more recently, demand has really increased for ESG due diligence to be included in that as well. Um, and we have sort of a standard reporting format that we follow that's based on the Better Building Partnerships Sustainability Acquisition Toolkit and GRESP guidance on what should be included at acquisition. But we also have some custom requirements from clients. So where they've got targets for the long term, maybe 2030, 2040, et cetera, they understand now that they need to take a look at that during acquisition to understand how this property is going to fit into those targets, maybe what works need to be done between now and then to bring them up to, to scratch and really highlight all of those risks and opportunities during the acquisition phase. So I would say not only has the amount of requests for ESG due diligence that we've gotten increased, but also the types of ESG due diligence has really um, expanded as well. So we used to have just kind of one standard report or one kind of standard checklist of things to look through. Now we've also included things like climate risk assessments to understand what are the climate risks in the future for this asset and what would the possible mitigation measures need to be implemented. Same with certification. So where clients have certification targets, maybe for Briam on all of their projects, then they would want to look at that during acquisition and maybe do a pre-assessment and an optimization report. Or if they have certain EPC requirements, they might be looking at that during acquisition to understand where does this building sit now and what does it need to do to meet my target. So yeah, I would say ESG due diligence has really grown arms and legs in the last couple of years. Um, and we're obviously very happy to see that because that just only shows that clients are more aware of kind of the risks and opportunities that, that there are there. I guess some of those perhaps are they're looking, you know, forward towards what, you know, kind of what kind of retrofitting they're maybe going to need to do once once they've got the building on board. Exactly. And that's the ideal situation. So if we're, you know, doing all these studies and, and reporting in the acquisition phase, um, ideally, you know, clients will take that directly. They'll we'll work with our project management team and try and get those things implemented as, as soon as possible. And we can get that started during the acquisition stage so they can really hit the ground running post-purchase. Just one last question for me, which is that um, if you had a crystal ball, what significant shifts or advancements do you think will happen in the commercial real estate sector regarding ESG? Are there any specific developments, trends, innovative approaches, etc., that you anticipate the industry's adoption and integration of ESG generally? Yeah, I would say um, we're seeing a big shift right now in the transition from predicted energy use to actual energy use. And so what I mean with that is um, where people have really grasped on to EPCs, as I think it's a clear understanding with the clear rating from A, B, C, etc. Um, it's a clear way to see how you're building rates. The trouble with EPCs is that it's a predictive measure of energy use. So you're predicting how the building is going to perform and the building might perform completely different than what you've expected from the EPC. So we're seeing a, a shift in focus from that predicted um, energy use and carbon emissions towards actual energy use and carbon emissions, which means maybe measuring the building after it's been in use, capturing um, either 12 months of data or, or maybe more frequently of energy data to make sure that the building is really meeting its targets. And so then a couple of targets that clients are using to, to really make sure their buildings are performing accurately would be the CREM tool. So the CREM tool is um, a tool that helps to identify the energy use and carbon emission targets for buildings following the Paris proof alignment. Um, and so kind of in the vacuum of legislation and uncertainty about where where legislation is going to be going in the future 
we've really seen the market grab on to those creme targets for their for their goal setting. Um, and then Neighbors as well, which of course is a certification that's recently come over to the UK from Australia, also looking at actual energy use with buildings in use and how they actually perform post-completion. So I think we're really going to see a shift kind of from that predicted case to the actual case using tools like Prem and Neighbours. Well, thank you so much for that, Catherine. Um, some really interesting insights. You've definitely got me thinking. It's been a real privilege to explore the interaction with and the importance of ESG and real estate for our guest, Catherine Beisler from Hollis Global. Thank you too for joining us on this enlightening journey towards a sustainable future in real estate. And please stay tuned for further episodes of Talking Sustainable Real Estate with Dentons for more meaningful conversations that will continue to pave the way for positive change in the real estate industry. Mm-hmm.